0: ever wondered about making a decision, whether you go to the left to the right, you feel that it's going to have massive implications for the rest of your journey. Yoki Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. That's not quite how we can manage our lives. We know there are consequences to choices. And this inspiring message, Mark Mosher reminds us that who we follow when we're making decisions has a tremendous impact on our destination. The fate of followers rests largely upon who and what they trust in making decisions. Who guides you? What principles shape your choices? Let's get into it. And thank you, friend, for joining us at Arlington tonight. We're going to talk about the fate of the follower
1: in Luke chapter 5, verse 11. It's basically the end of a story of God, Jesus, calling Peter and a couple of his friends, James and John, to discipleship, to be his disciples. They forsook all and followed him. Several weeks ago, I finished a book, and I'm going to share just a narrative from that book because it was interesting and just so powerful to me to to think about. In this book, it talks about a journey that ended up being over 8,000 miles on water. Pretty long journey. By the end, they had run out of food, supplies, everything. They just barely made it home. 2,500 miles into that same journey, they were called the core of discovery. I don't know if that tickles anybody's memory. This is a couple hundred years ago. It included a woman (laughs) who happened to be pregnant. Now imagine going 8,000 miles on a trip, being pregnant. That would be rough, Kayla, I saw that. I totally understand. No, I don't, but I totally understand the feeling. And they had come to this point, 2,500 miles into this journey, and there was a decision point that had to be made. And that point was which way to go. See, they had paddled upstream for over 13 months against the current of the longest river in the United States. What is the longest river in the United States? Anybody know? Not bad. Anybody else have any other guesses? Anybody else have any other guesses? Colorado. Colorado. Scott, you're right. Even though it's the tributary to the Mississippi River, it is actually the longest river. I didn't know that. It was, um, it goes, of course, through St. Louis. you've been to St. Louis, you know you've crossed over it rolls through half, splits Missouri, rolls up, becomes a state line for Iowa, Nebraska, goes through the Dakotas into Montana of all places. So it is a quite a long river. You don't really think of Missouri River. We always think of it around the middle of of our country, but it's actually up in the Northwest it ends. It is this river um, that they were in and they'd gone 2,500 miles. And their maps had not said there'd be this fork in the river. There was now two rivers and they were not sure what to do. These men and women, almost 40 of them, had to make a decision, but they weren't sure what the decision should be. Because here's the deal. The Missouri River is, um, and this is what uh, one of the leaders said in his journal, he says, um, it is, a, you know, a river that is very much a muddy river. It has a whitish brown color. It's very thick and so forth. So when they look, they see one fork, right? The one on the uh, right hand. It's actually, if you think about the Mercy, Missouri River, it's coming from the Rockies. So that's where they were. They see the mountains in the horizon. And this river on the right looks like it goes straight into those mountains because these men want to get on the other side of those mountains. So that made logical, Brother Roy, to just go to that river. And in fact, it looked just like the Missouri River. It was the same boiling and roiling manner, which has uniformly characterized Missouri throughout its whole course so far. Its waters are of a whitish-brown color, very thick and turbid, also characteristic Missouri. That was put in the journal. On the left was this clear flowing river, right? Not as muddy. And it was flowing from the Southwest. It confused them. It took them six days and multiple days of 30 plus mile walks. Now, who likes to walk? Do you like to walk 30 miles (laughs) per day? That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to investigate both rivers to see where they were. And, um, well, uh, they just couldn't figure out. There was no definite sure on either one of them what to do. After six days, most of the men and women in the group pretty much decided that the fork on the right hand, that's gotta be the Missouri. It looks just like what we came out of. It looks so much like it. And only two people said, well, I think the left side is. Now here's the challenge. The two people were the leaders of this expedition. It's kinda tough now. Two against about 30, 35, right? They're going against the pop, the popular vote, right? But they're the leaders and they've got to make a hard decision, right? And the followers got an even harder decision because what happens if the leaders choose the path they haven't chosen? What do you do at that point? That, and it's going to decide their fate, right? They go the wrong way. It's late in the season. They don't have that many supplies. They may not make it to their destination. So today, I'm going to ask you the same thing that they kind of had to ask themselves. Who am I going to follow and how am I going to follow? Because it decides my fate. In the Bible, that's one narrative. We're going to share a couple of biblical narratives, kind of talking about what not to follow and what to follow. I'm going to give you some examples of, you know, some bad examples, you know. You know, occasionally you sometimes watch people, Brother Willie, you watch them. Yeah, I'm not doing what they do, right? Somebody, you like on the road, you see somebody driving kind of wild. You know, yeah, I'm not doing that, you know. Um, So sometimes you, you learn by not watching other people and saying, I'm not doing that. And that's what we're going to learn right here. So we're going to talk about Eve. Our friend Eve, right, walking in the garden, working in the garden. And she is confronted, right, with a choice in the garden. That choice was to obey and to follow God or to listen to this serpent. We always visualize it sitting in a tree, Amory, right? Talking to her saying, hey, come here. You gotta try this fruit. can't you're gonna be just like God. Come on, you, wanna, you want that, don't you? You wanna be a God, don't you? You wanna be in control. And we know, right? <laughs> she took a bite. Paul says that she was deceived by Satan's craftiness in the garden in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In that same chapter, he warns us kind of what might have been part of the craftiness that he used on her. Because remember, Satan's original condition was Lucifer, right? He was an angel in heaven and got cast down. And so he had a little bit of this leftover ability to make himself look like an angel of light. And of course, we always think when we see an angel of light, that's got to be from God, right? Whatever they say, it's got to be from God. But it's not always. Remember, the Bible warns us that wolves can come in sheep's clothing. Ever heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Some books look really good. They have great marketing. You go to read them. Yeah, four pages in you're done. Right? You might be in one of those books. <laughs> so let's talk about another example. This is from first Kings chapter twelve. Oh Jeroboam. Anybody know who Jeroboam was. Yeah, we don't quite remember him the same way we do like a Josiah or a David or Solomon, right? It's interesting though, Jeroboam Jeroboam is responsible for leading the rebellion that split the kingdom of Israel. Remember this great and powerful kingdom, right? From David and Solomon that was one of the wealthiest empires, right? They got gold from Ophir. They were, you know, Solomon, he was amazing, right? Richest man, wisest man. And he has a son, Rehoboam, who's not so wise. And Jeroboam, who had been trusted by Solomon, but now wasn't, rips the kingdom apart. And oh, by the way, he doesn't take one tribe. No, 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 no. He doesn't take the barren land. No, he takes 10 tribes and the land that's most fruitful and has the trade uh, highways in it. That's pretty cool. They have all the money. Right? He has he has all the cards. Except he has one problem. Mark, he doesn't have Jerusalem. So he doesn't have the temple. So therefore, he's stuck with an issue. That issue is his people want to go worship. But they're going to have to go to Jerusalem, which is now in the kingdom of Judah, which is Rehoboam's kingdom, to do that. So he comes up with a great idea, Marshawn. He says, you know what? They don't need to go to Jerusalem. They just, I just need to find them a place that looks like Jerusalem. Smells like Jerusalem, sounds like Jerusalem. But it's not Jerusalem. It's not the temple. He says, I look around my kingdom and I have this town. Anybody ever heard of Bethel? Bethel. Bethel, that's where Jacob, right, when he's running away from uh, his family, right, going to Haran to uh, find a wife and basically escape his brother, who's pretty mad at him and wants to kill him. He lays down on a rock, has this wonderful dream about angels going up and down the ladder from heaven. And he says, surely God's been in this place. I'm gonna offer right here. And if, if God... Takes care of me, I will worship. And essentially, I'm summarizing. That's basically what he says. He makes it very conditional on his part. He's like in charge. Like he says, Well, God, as long as you know you take care of me, I'm good. Later on, of course, we learned it, his mindset changes. But this is the same little town, Bethel, that Samuel judges from. It's also where the Ark of the Covenant stayed for a while. So in their culture. It's a revered space. It is a religious institution. Jeroboam decides to tell the people, I'm going to build you a statue there. Interesting enough, he picks a very familiar statue to the Israelites, and that is a calf. He also builds a second calf in Dan, just for those people up north. Just in case they didn't really want to, you know, drive their car that far. But he says these calves; these are the gods that delivered you from Israel, from Egypt. Huh? When I read that, I'm like, how did that happen? How did people go from believing that the temple and that's Yahweh now believe? that a the one that lived from from Egypt. Think about that for just, just a minute. Just meditate on that. how that happen? There must have been some serious misinformation, Seth. And they started believing it. Side note, sometimes in our current media environment, there's a lot of misinformation on both sides. And we might just want to look a little deeper on that. And be careful. You'll get Deceived. And you'd hate to be deceived so much that you believe the golden calf delivered you from Egypt. Jeroboam even develops a feast similar to the one that they were holding in Jude at the same time. So he caused all the people, and that's the way we kind of look at it, oh, he made them fall away from God. But as you can tell, to believe a calf delivered from Egypt, they had already started falling away they'd already decided to start following things that were not of God. So it was easy for Jeremiah to say, don't go to Jerusalem, just go to Bethel and worship this calf, we'll have a nice party there and a feast and you'll have a good time and everything will be great. Does anybody know where the 10 tribes of Israel are today? They're called the lost 10 tribes because they got assimilated The Assyrians took them, deported them, and that was a couple hundred years later. It took time, but eventually, all that wandering away from God called up to them. And so, that is a bad example. Don't you think of who to follow, right? Don't follow somebody who's gonna have you worship a calf. But let's think about that for a minute. Aren't there things in your life that you may hold a little bit of higher value than maybe should be? Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your stubbornness. Maybe it's your emotions. Maybe it's your offense being offended at. Maybe it's you want to say, I am who I am and I'm not changing for nobody, nowhere, no how. Now God doesn't have to change, right? But everybody else and yeah, we got to change. Even after the new birth experience, we have to change. Yeah. I have to change. I look in the mirror every day, Scott, and I said, "Boy, yeah, you got a lot of work to do, son." God how in the world did you even want to save this? But he did. Isn't that awesome? You can look in the mirror and see how rotten you are, and sometimes we feel that way. You know? Sometimes we feel pretty good. We look in the mirror and we're like, yeah, that looks nice. That looks good. I'm doing good today. Other days, we don't feel that way. And it's in those days where we trust God's grace to lift us up, right? So we have here the two bad examples, right? We have Jeroboam, we have Eve, unfortunately both choosing to follow wayward paths. Tough. And you know the impact of both, right? You think your decisions don't have an impact on anybody else, even the ones we make when we think nobody's looking. I've got something I'm gonna confess. In my fasting, the last couple weeks, and I hope you've been fasting, is there's some thoughts that I'm seeking control over so that I can be more sanctified and live more closely to my Savior. I don't want to waste energy on some negative or wayward thoughts. Does that make sense? That's hard, though. I don't know about you, but my brain goes 110 miles per hour in 14 different ways on a bad day. And my family will tell you that. I'm terrible about you know trying to pay attention to somebody, my eyes going here, my eyes going there, my eyes going everywhere. Because my mind's just going on and on. And yet that is what we deal with. And we have to control some of those wasted energy of thoughts, right? So let's talk about good examples, right? Let's talk about some fun, right? Peter, our friend Peter, right, who preached on the day of Pentecost. Who, says, who stood up and said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. The one who spoke to Gentiles, most of us in here probably don't have Jewish blood, so we're the Gentiles, and he's the one that had the dream, and God says, yeah, when you said, and this is for all, I didn't mean just all the Jews and all the nations, I meant, I meant those folks in Mexico, I meant those folks in Czechoslovakia, I meant those folks in India, I meant those folks in England, those folks in America that you don't even know about yet. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. We see Peter. He's a fisherman by trade. And we see that he, in Luke chapter five, has worked all night. So if he's worked, he's not slept. So in the morning, they haven't caught anything, Martin. No no, no fish caught. None. Long night. Right? Working hard on a boat. And they're stuck here, cleaning their nets, being frustrated, tired, and exhausted. And all of a sudden, somebody they knew and they respected walks up and says, um, I'm teaching. I need you to take me out a little, front, a little way so I can teach everybody. Anybody who know who that friend was? That was Jesus. Our friend Jesus. Jesus tells this tired man, it's (laughs) like, hey, I need you. I know you're tired, but I I need to take your boat and go out a little ways. Now, from culture, we think of teaching in the Bible, and people kind of talk about the Beatitudes as being a very short sermon, but think about it, usually those, those speeches they taught were a little bit longer than 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, hour. So being up all night, knowing that Jesus has been teaching, but he's going to continue teaching. Of course, we know Jesus got plenty to teach on, right? He doesn't run out of material. (laughs) I mean, he is the word of God. Come on. He can do it all. He's out on the boat teaching. And all of a sudden he turns to Peter, who's Peter's like, you're finally done teaching. Good. I'm ready to go back home. And that mattress is looking so great right now. But he doesn't tell Peter, To go back in, he says, "Go the other way. Go to the deep end of this lake." What? Don't you see how tired I am? Don't you see? I I didn't catch anything. Why are we going to go try to catch any more fish? There's nothing out there, God. And he tells God, "This says we fished all night. We didn't catch anything." But a key word comes. And this is why Peter becomes who becomes what we know of Peter today. He says, nevertheless, I will. I'm not so sure about this, God. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. And at your word, I'm going to let down the net. Even though he was at his wits' end, he still followed God's command. Yeah. When everything in his body said, This makes zero sense. I fished there. There's nothing there. I've been up all night. I am dead tired. I'm exhausted, God. And I still got to go back into and, and anchor the boat, clean up the nets, and pack up everything. There's still hours left of work, God. Why I go that way? Everything in his mind said, this is nuts. Pardon the West Tennessee vernacular. Yet, there was something that says, I'm a follower. I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna obey. It doesn't seem logical, but this man, I believe in him and I'm gonna trust. And the story goes, right? And the rest of the story, as Paul Harvard Harvard used to say, was fish, lots of fish. So many fish, it broke their nets. He had to call people from off the shore to come, and they had lots of fish. And as those fish are breaking the net, he turns, and he says, Oh God, oh Lord, I am a sinful man, depart from me. And what he was really saying, because he bowed down, is his. This is why I need to follow you. I repent of my bad thoughts. I repent in doubting of you. I repent of everything I've done before because I've seen what you've done. You just provided for me. When everything in logic says it wouldn't happen. And Jesus turns to him and says, this isn't all. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're not going to just receive, but you're going to go give. And the Bible says in, the, in our scripture says, and he forsook, forsook everything. All those fish, he left them to him, all his friends. All the ones that didn't follow. See him, James, and John, they said, the fish, that's a lot of fish. That's great. But that's, that's only for a day. What this guy has, I need to follow. In one moment, he decided he was going to follow for the next three and a half years. In one moment, he decided that his life was forever changed. His purpose was going to become different. And it's because he forsook everything. Can I give you a second example? Somebody else who wrote a lot of the Bible, a lot of the New Testament we read and a lot of people want to base a lot of doctrine on and it's good, although they forget the doctrine he actually did in the book of Acts, is our friend Paul. Paul, what do y'all know about old Paul? He might have a couple of just quick facts about old Paul. That's right. Anybody else? He hunted the Jews. He did hunt the Jews. And of the well, they were the Jews that claimed that they were Christians. You're right. Anybody else? A tent
0: maker?
1: He was a tent maker. He was also something called a Pharisee, which means he was a part of the establishment. And by the way, in Galatians it says. I was quite zealous. I was above my peers in being a Pharisee. In the book of Acts, he testifies that he chased and killed people. He also would torture them enough that they would blaspheme. He took Christians, and between obviously his intellect and his cruelty, he would cause them to blaspheme. That's tough. That's a bad dude. And the Pharisees were so confident with him, they said, You know what? You're doing a great job in Jerusalem, but man, they're they're spreading. They're still going everywhere. I want you to go to Syria. Damascus is in Syria. The, The road to Damascus is going north to Syria. That means he's going into the Gentile land because they keep going away from Jerusalem. So he's chasing them. And on the road to Damascus, what happened? met God. He met God. When you meet God, (laughs) it's going to change you. Of course, some people say, "Well, of course, if I meet God, I would never turn away. I would always do the right thing. Lots of people met God. And lots of people walk by his cross and says, heal thyself. Right? Lots of disciples fell away, the Bible says. So lots of people met God, and it didn't really change them, at least not for the better, at least not permanently. But our friend Paul, in his conversation with God, asked a very important question that we have to ask today and every day. It is this, Josh, what Shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? You're giving me this moment with you, God, and you've called me out. You've challenged me. So my question to you, God, is, okay, I'm gonna be humble and obedient. And we'll say, what shall I do? Which means, right? I will do whatever you ask, God. Whenever you ask. However. You want me to do it, right? Now, the challenge for all of us in this room, right, is we like things on our conditions. We want the contract to be in our favor. Remember I talked about Jacob at Bethel, right? He says, as long as God's providing for me, I will follow him. See, that was, that was quote, you know, I, I, when I've read that before, I was like, come on. How could God stay patient with somebody like that? Because he's saying, God, as long as I'm prosperous, I'll serve you. As long as there's no adversity in my life, God, I'm good, I'll serve you. Except we really don't serve him. We forget him. More often than not, we get all happy and content with what we got. And we find all kinds of diversions in our life. I know it's a little tough. It's tough on me when I was studying it. Believe me lots of walks, lots of repenting, is that God is challenging us to say, go beyond being a receiver. Go beyond just doing the minimum you can to look good, to feel good, to soothe your conscience. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Have anybody been there that kind of know? Yeah, there's times you've done just barely enough so that you can say you're a Christian. Yeah. You know, we're gonna take communion shortly Brother Brian and Brother Scott, if they would if they would do that. And I'll give you the signal in a few minutes. And you know, communion is one of those things where it's self-examination of who you are. And I'll be honest, that can be tough. Because if you're really honest, right? And Stanley says, when you ask a question to yourself, ask the question at the end of it, say, really? Because sometimes we like to lie to ourselves. We say, oh, I've been good today. You know, or, you know, we'll ask a question, and kind of just blow it off. But then if you really ask the question, say, really, are you sure? I mean, yes, somebody that you didn't quite believe them. And you're like, I know as a, as a dad, right? I look at Alex and I say, really, are you sure? I don't know about that. And then you get the honest answer. Right, And today God is going to, in this communion, he's going to ask you, where are you really? Are you at the point where you can say, nevertheless, at thy will, right? The Lord's Prayer, everybody likes to pray that, right? Thy will be done. Are you willing to put your will down and say, thy will be done in me. Not, not in the person next to me, not, not, not into my friend down the street, but in me, thy will be done. And when God challenges you, are you willing to be humble and say, what, what are you asking me to do, God? And truthfully, sometimes, you know, Paul had the supernatural, right? We see that, but it's funny. It is not on the road to Damascus that we find that he was commanded to be baptized. It was God just told him to go to Damascus and wait. And when he gets to Damascus, that's where his blindness from the shining light is healed. And Ananias challenges Paul and says, arise and be baptized calling on the name of the Lord. Now, Paul, right? He could say, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. I can see now, I'm good. I I can go back to my regular life. I can forget that whole road of Damascus experience. That that just happened. Maybe that was just a vision. Maybe maybe I was hallucinating, I, I don't know. Maybe I was dehydrated. I can walk away from that. And Ananias, the way you're talking, you are my enemy. So yeah, I'm gonna take care of you. He could have said all that. But he didn't, did he? No, he followed Ananias' instructions. And sometimes in your life, there's gonna be people in your life, our pastor being one of them, and his wife, who are gonna speak to you into your life. And you're gonna have to have a choice. Do you say, I don't know what they talking about. I don't know what they smoking. I won't suffer. Or are you actually me to say, nevertheless, I hear the voice of God through them. Yes. And I'm going to say, if I am obedient to Jesus, and if Jesus tells me to go to Damascus, and if Jesus tells me to find that the man of God is going to come into my home, and he's going to tell me to do something, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to do it. Now that's hard, that is hard. That's a hard ask, the first time, second time. The more you do it though, Brother Roy, and I know if I got you up, you'd testify. You start falling. you understand the more you're submitting to God and the ones that he's ordained over you, that your life begins to blossom that your influence, that your influence begins to grow on other people. Because Peter, as a disciple, wouldn't you say he was pretty much the ultimate disciple maker? How that happened? Nevertheless, I will. Nevertheless, at thy will, nevertheless, at thy will, nevertheless, I will. Yes, I repeat it for a fact. So when the pastor challenges you to to repent of your sins, or a friend in your Bible study group challenges you about something in your life that's he see he or she sees you're doing that's probably not getting you where you really, really want to go, you kinda have to listen. You kinda have to be willing to be held accountable. You kind of have to pick up the phone and say, yeah, I've got this going on in my life and I need advice. I need godly advice. Can you pray with me? And maybe sometimes you're on the other side of that coin and you have to pick up the phone and say, hey, we've been friends a while. I'm seeing you start to build a little golden calf in Bethel. Let's have a talk. I see you putting things in place that are having you walk away from God. And I love you too much. I love you too much. If you'll stand. Praise God. Brother Brian, we'll get the communion stuff. See, there's some questions we have to ask ourselves when we think about this communion. Am I willing at your word, God, to repent of my sins? Am I willing to be baptized in your name? It's the only formula that was actually used in the New Testament. Lord, am I willing to be open to receiving the Holy Spirit? Am I willing to be in a Bible study? Even if that means I have to be the one to ask. Am I willing to pray for my church family? Am I willing to pray for my community? Am I willing to see God's kingdom expand? Am I willing to allow myself to be free in my worship and praise? Yeah, sometimes the first time you start raising your hands a little uncomfortable, but it'll get better and you will realize it's pretty awesome. Maybe you ask God, what shall I do? And he is asking you to be a giver. See, you always receive stuff from God, but maybe you need to challenge, how can I give, God? How can I give to the people that you love? Maybe you should ask, isn't it time to be involved in building a church in the town you live in that follows the apostolic doctrine rather than maybe some things that were Put in place by medieval priests and philosophers. Maybe it's time that you chose to walk in a covenant lifestyle with God. I'm not just talking about the outside. I'm talking about the inside. Like keeping your commitments to God. Right. So, rather than commit stuff to men, commit stuff to God. And you know, As Peter chose to leave everything behind as you come and take this communion, and you think about those two questions, and if you answer in the affirmative, God, if you're gonna answer affirmative to what God is drawing you to, leave your past mistakes. Can I tell you, when you walk with God, your past doesn't matter. Your failures, they mean nothing once you're forgiven of your sins. When you're washed in his blood, everything, don't look back. Look forward. You know, leave the old traditions behind. You don't even know why you do them anyway. You know, leave your bitterness and hurts. See, that's the hard part. I'm that I walk around a lot of Christians, Rocky, and they hold on to certain emotions, certain things, and they become easily offended over and over and over because they just refuse to understand that God so loved the world So he forgives you of your sins. Can't you forgive other people of theirs? See, if God looks past your failures, if he looks past my failures, can we not look past everybody else's? Why do we want to hold all this stuff? that's killing us inside. When our Lord, when our Savior stood on that cross, he could have come down at any moment, beaten, bruised, scarred, and he's about to go to hell for you to unlock the keys. To give you the grace and the freedom to live with Him. Why would you ever hold anything, anything that destroys the joy of that? People are gonna hurt you, of course they are. You're gonna pour into people's lives and they're gonna just walk away from you. They may even talk ill of you, Brian, and you spend hours in a Bible study with them, you've prayed with them at the altar. You've given up meals for them. You've answered phone calls at 12 o'clock at night when you've only had one hour of sleep and you know you've got to get up in a couple hours because you've got an early morning shift. And you take the call because God so loved the world. And you pour because you think you're doing what God says and then they walk away. there's things in your maybe there's churches that hurt you Maybe, maybe you've worked in a church and you know you've poured into that church and maybe people for whatever reason hurt you and you say you know this isn't for me Really. Peter said, I'm going to forsake everything, including my hurts, my pain, my bitterness, my strife, my emotions, my stories. See, sometimes the stories that make us bitter, they're kind of like the devil's story to Eve. Not really the truth. Conversations in our head always make us either the victim or the angel. It's the other person's fault. Or I couldn't help it. Am I speaking truth? I know. It's challenging, I get it. But leave it. Leave all that junk behind that keeps you from following God with everything in your heart, mind, and soul. Leave it all. What is it anyway compared to the grace of God? What is it anything to the presence of God that walked into your life? Can you remember when you received God, when you received forgiveness, when you were baptized in His name, when you received the gift of the Holy Ghost? What did it feel like? Do you remember? Didn't it feel awesome? Didn't you feel like nothing was on you? And you felt so free, so good. And you're like, God, I never want to forget this ever again. But this message right here, this message is all about reminding you. This do in remembrance of me. Remember the freedom I've given you. When you in that moment said, I leave everything. follow you. Hallelujah. 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 Let's pray. Father, we're going to do this communion in remembrance of you. And we're going to ask these questions. thing behind Have I chosen your will over mine and am I willing just to ask the open-ended question what shall I do Is arrogant or knowing it all because I know in my heart, Lord, that I stand here, Lord, open, saying, I, I struggle with these. I struggle sometimes, God, with my motivations. I struggle sometimes with being cynical and being selfish, God. I, God, I know my heart is nowhere close to being perfect, that I have told myself stories. To justify the way I feel. The way I want to act. i told those stories. Saying I'm the victim. That I've done nothing wrong. I've been self-righteous. I have forgotten. Who you are. And what you mean to me. I have chosen God to build idols in sacred spaces. I have chosen God to mimic and not be the real thing. Oh, God. But today, at this moment, I don't want to do that ever again.
0: I want to be always at your disposal. Always
1: to serve you serve your people, your community, your kingdom, God, wherever it leads me. I never want to say no again to you, God.
0: I want to follow the path that leads to the source, where the waters of the Spirit are clear, cold, and pure, and where that life flows out of me to replenish and refresh and restore and renew everyone and everything around me. I believe, I believe that there is a proper path to follow. That the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and credible leaders of God can show us a path forward into life and life more abundantly. Are you ready to make that choice? No matter what it costs, no matter what the risks may seem, what is the fate of you as a follower? Thank you, friend, for joining us at Orange United